Escape, a work of fiction based on a true story. Part 2. And the day may yet bring an opportunity to escape. The forested park and its massive trees brought calm and reassurance, and the day may bring an opportunity to escape. The work gang rested on the grass as the guards from the prison camp climbed into the trucks and drove off. Their departure gave me a chance to size up the new guards who would accompany us to our work site, wherever that was. I shared earlier that many of the prison guards were young teenagers. On the other hand, the new guards were older men, many of whom were overweight. Some seemed infirm, in need of medical care. Several of the guards did not have uniforms. Some had only parts of uniforms. However, I could easily tell who the commanders were because they rode in the trucks. All the guards carried either automatic rifles or Uzis, and none seemed in a good mood. As I studied them, I continued to toy with the idea of attacking one and resting away his gun. When we formed up to start out March to our work location, I asked one of the British NCOs, whom I knew spoke German, what the guards were saying. He said he did not know. They weren't speaking German. Probably some Slavic language. I now believe that the guards were part of a mercenary army hired by the SS. Germans could no longer be spared to guard prisoners on work gangs. we formed our open-order forced march under the purview of our new guards. Again, the British contingent formed the lead group, marching with quick-step cadence in a tight formation. To see them marching so tightly grouped, one might think they were performing a parade ground maneuver. You would not have known that they were leading 500 POW prisoners to forced labor projects performing excruciating work under the most difficult circumstances. Again, the intended order of march was to be by separate nationalities. The British first, followed by the Americans, etc. However, I noticed that our new guards were more casual than our earlier guards. I saw that the groups intermingled with no guard interference. That confirmed an escape plan in my mind. We would move forward to intermingle with the fast-moving British troops. We reasoned if we could infiltrate as inconspicuously as possible the British ranks, they could serve as a buffer. Possibly minimizing the guards' reaction, maybe they would hold their fire to avoid shooting them. So, we moved up by cautious spurts until we were about center in the British group. Of course, we brought those in our immediate vicinity into our confidence about our intentions. They thought we were crazy, crazy Yanks, they probably had a point. I noticed that the British contingent was not as heavily guarded as the others. Initially, there were only four guards for the whole contingent. In contrast, the Poles had 25 to 30 guards around their contingent. After a couple of miles, one of the guards for the British contingent fell behind 
unable to keep up with the blistering pace. Then I noticed that two of the guards for the British contingent had moved close together and were having an extended conversation with each other. That left only the one guard on the other side. The odds were getting better. The terrain afforded some help. It was up and down and flowed unevenly left and right, causing our gravel road in the forest to be winding and narrow. The guards were staggered left and right over the line of march, meaning that if the road bore suddenly leftward, the right-hand guard would lose his visibility to his right, while the guard on the left hand would have the moving column in the way of any sudden remedial action. Hopefully, those factors would prevent the guards from emptying their guns onto the POWs who were around us. We didn't want to be responsible for proximity retribution. The big unknown was how qualified these new guards were with longer-range targets. My own gut told me they were not that good. But I could have been wrong. Our plan was now simple. When we thought the guards could not see us, we would break out from the center of the ranks, each heading in different directions, and we would run as fast as we could for any available cover. Speed, fast, quick, fan out in different directions. However, had we studied the situation rationally, we would have realized that posed a problem. We were terribly underweight, probably as much as 60 pounds. How fast is a man who has been on a starvation diet? And we were also carrying gear. The road turned sharply left. Time to go. Go. Time to go. To go. Time to go. To go. Time to go. To go. The road turned sharply left, time to go. We took off. The terrain was again favorable. The first few hundred yards were slightly downhill. Shouts to halt by the guards were followed by shots. But by agreement, we had determined that we would never turn back. Keep running. The terrain turned malicious. Uphill and lungs burning. Keep running. The guards probably thought we would immediately stop when they fired at us. But their shots motivated us to go even faster. Not that we outran the bullets, no. But we did run faster because of them. We finally reached a strip of small trees where, with no evidence of pursuit and unable, 
or so it seemed, to run another yard, we flopped and panted like animals pursued by hounds. Where were we? We did not know. The work gang column had been heading roughly northeast, but we were now on a road that twisted through a dense forest. Once we had our lungs back, we looked up at the sky and realized that it would soon be dark. Many questions were we followed. Enemy territory still surrounded us, about which we knew nothing. Did the guards radio ahead to other units who would be searching for us? Possibly hunting us with dogs and maybe aircraft? Surely the German authorities had organized local surveillance teams, keeping watch on the territory and reporting suspicious activities to the central authority. We would be obvious to anyone. We quickly realized that a single soldier from the German Home Guard could easily kill any or all of us with their probably antique rifle. And the biggest question of all, were we in a German-controlled zone, a Russian-controlled zone, or an Allied-controlled zone? From the reports on the camp's jerry-rigged clandestine radio, we knew things were very fluid. Russians were coming from the east, the British from the north, and the Americans from the south. But the last report we heard was now several days old. Things probably had changed since we heard it. All we knew was that the forest shadows were getting longer, and we had to find shelter from the damp, chilly fog that was already surrounding us. Both Harold and I were avid hunters back in our civilian days. My father had given me my first gun when I turned 15, and we always went deer hunting together in the fall. He had taught me to read tracks and how to camouflage myself in the woods. Those would prove to be useful skills in the days to come. Our first decision was obvious. We needed to move more deeply into the seclusion of the forest away from the road. We moved quietly and quickly up a game trail that I had noticed, traveling probably a couple of miles over what was mostly uphill terrain. It proved to be a cold, cloudless night. Half a moon helped to dissipate the darkness. Then, as we crested a ridge, the heavy forest broke into a meadow. By then, we were exhausted and freezing in the cold. Our fears about being discovered were replaced by frozen hands and feet. We all knew that we had to stop, but where to spend the night? Down in the meadow, we saw what seemed the perfect refuge. A farmer had helpfully stacked his hay into five large haystacks. What could be a better place to spend the night? Covered by warm hay. The haystacks seemed heaven sent. The problem was that to get to the haystacks, we would have to surrender our protective forest cover. There was too much moonlight to get to them unnoticed. We had not seen evidence that we were being tracked. We had heard no dogs, seen no searchlights, felt no German troops breathing down our necks. We seemed alone, undetected. Maybe, we all agreed, we could make it down to the haystacks without being spotted. Even though we were dead tired and still very apprehensive, we chanced it. A good night's rest would be, we all agreed, worth it. Unfortunately, we quickly regretted our decision. It took us about 20 minutes to sneak across the meadow to the first haystack. We would sleep in the soft hay, hidden from enemy detection. 
From a distance, that haystack looked soft and inviting. When we came to it, we found that it was a refuse pile of dried, brittle plants, the residue from harvesting potatoes, sugar beets, rutabagas, or some other root crop. To add insult to injury, they were several years old. We had risked our protective cover in the forest for a pile of farm refuse. We quickly returned to the forest and built a bivouac from pine needles, and then quickly fell off to sleep. This work of fiction is dedicated to Vernon J. Cumberland, Bruce Waldo, and Horace Cathay, who lived in real life the historical events used to create this work. Mm -hmm.